0: No, no, it's called... It wa- you're, stop, stop. You're hurting yourself here. <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott God. Elfstrom. Some have said his voice sounds like, If chocolate fudge cake could sing. And through a career that spanned decades, his remarkable voice made his mark on the music of our time. Today we're talking about the walrus of love, Barry White. Oh yeah. But first, what's your favorite Texas island?
1: Well, if I have to choose one that has a name, um, I'd go with Galveston. I mean, it's close to home and if I'm being honest, it's pretty much the only island that I can recall ever visiting. never been to South Padre. But my real favorite island uh, was the one that used to be in the middle of the Colorado River, just downstream from my Nana's house. Uh, we'd go take the old flat-bottom boat out in the river and uh, play around out there sometimes. And I had some wild dreams about camping there, but uh, those never came true. And since it was a island in the middle of the river that really was just a big sandbar, um, it's not there anymore. So, I'm going to go with whatever island in this stream that Kenny Rogers sang about. Yeah. Mm. Those, those could be in
0: Texas. You know what? I'm I'll afraid I'm going to disqualify you, Sean. You are disqualified. <laughs> You're off the uh, podcast today. Scott right, and I well, got how about, this.
2: How about uh, how about Outlaw Island, the island that was in the the, the Rio Grande that the uh, the Texas Rangers had to go clean out periodically. Oh, we talked yeah, about yeah, that yeah. previous episode. Island. Where they,
1: tried, that, to the that, right, where the they tried to have the prize
2: fight? <laughs> that's right, where they tried to have the prize fights. That's awesome. an island in the stream, <laughs> that's right? That's a really They're, good... Sure. That's now, what that's Kenny a, Rogers... That's what they were singing about. No, oh,
0: this could is not be. what they were singing about. Not likely, but it could be. <laughs> that was not what Barry Gibb wrote that song about. <laughs> um, I, well, my heart is with Padre. Padre Island, the Texas Riviera. Just tune your radio to C101 and head to Corpus right over that bridge, baby, and I'll see you at spring break. But I'm also going to throw out one other one. In the middle of Lake Travis, when on years when there's droughts and the lake gets really low, there's this island that appears, and it's got a great name. It's just a big muddy lump in the middle of that lake. But they call it Sometimes Island, and I like that because it's only sometimes an island. So that's my favorite appropriately named thing in Texas.
2: (laughs) Maybe Island?
0: Barry Eugene Carter was born on September 12, 1944, in Galveston, Texas, to Melvin White and Sadie Marie Carter. They were unwed, so young Barry had his mother's name at birth. Sadie moved to South Central Los Angeles with Barry and his younger brother, Daryl, in 1955. Young Barry grew up listening to his mother's classical music collection, and what he heard inspired him he began to imitate on the piano what he heard. Now there's a legendary story that says an 11-year-old White played the piano on Jesse Belvin's hit single Goodnight My Love from 1956. Barry denied the story in a 1995 interview, dismissing it as an embellishment concocted by reporters. Though he did live in the same neighborhood as Belvin at the time. Now at some point, young Barry is going to take the name
2: Barry White, and so that's how we'll refer to him from this point on. He wasn't Born with a voice like chocolate cake, though. He said, I had a normal squeaky kid voice. Then as a teenager, that completely changed. My mother cried because she knew her baby boy had become a man. In the air in their obituary at Barry White, the BBC says okay, the BBC later wrote, His singularly deep voice caused his mother to scream with fright when it first broke at the age of fourteen. In addition to this voice, some of the other chief In addition to this voice, some other things changed in his teenage years. By the age of 16, White had fathered two children with his childhood sweetheart, Mary. They married in 1963 when he was 19, and they had a total of four children together. But they got separated
1: in 1969 and were divorced soon after. Like many young men growing up in South Central, White and his brother were involved in gang life. Darrell was murdered in a clash with a rival gang, and White served four months in jail in 1961 at the age of 16. He'd been convicted of stealing $30,000 worth of Cadillac tires. In an atypical scared straight scenario, the inmate White heard Elvis Presley singing It's Now or Never on the radio and credited that
0: experience with turning his life away from crime and toward music. Upon release from jail, White seriously pursued his musical career. His first releases were "Little Girl" and "Too Far to Turn Around" in 1960, as a part of a group called the Upfronts on a local LA label, Lum Tone Records. He also worked with several other independent LA labels and recorded many several and recorded several solo singles backed by vocal groups, the Atlantic and the Majestics, in the early 1960s. Despite these early recordings, Barry White didn't particularly want to be behind the
2: microphone. Bob Keene of Delphi Records hired him as an A&R man in 1966. Now, if you're not hip with this lingo, A&R is music industry jargon for artists and repertoire, which it's the department of the label that goes out and scouts talent and develops artists. Keene was also the man who had discovered Richie Valens and was responsible for Sam Cook's first pop recording. White started working with artists from Delphi, Mustang, and Bronco, all labels in Keene's stable. These artists, the artists that he worked with included Viola Wills, The Versatiles, which later changed their name to The Fifth Dimension, and
1: one of our favorite groups, the Bobby Fuller Four from El Paso, Texas. Wearing multiple hats for Keene, White worked as a songwriter, session musician, and arranger. His work with Viola Wills created his first bona fide hit, the top 20 single, Lost Without the Love of My Guy, and earned him a $20 a week raise that gave him a total salary of $60 a week. Bob Keane and Larry Nunes, who would be a future friend and spiritual advisor for White, both wanted to develop a new female act and asked White to go out and find one. He pursued a singer named Felice Taylor and arranged her song, I Feel Love Coming On. The song didn't burn up the charts in the United States, but was a huge hit in the U.K., Later songs did hit the charts in the United States. It may be winter outside, but in heart but in my heart it's spring and under the influence of love both did well both did as well in the United States as they did in England. Based on their success, White's weekly salary went up to $400 a week, which at the time was really nothing to uh, sneeze about. The Bronco label went out of business soon after, however, and White made a go of it
0: as an independent producer for several years. In 1972, Paul Politti, a friend and songwriting partner in Bronco, contacted White and told him that Nunes wanted to work with him again. Since being at Bronco, Perry had worked with the girl group Love Unlimited that hadn't done any professional singing. The group was formed to imitate the Supremes and hone their talents with White for two years before the deal with Nunes came together. Once they recorded their demo, Nunes took it to Russ Reagan, Head of Uni Records, which was owned by MCA. From a girl's point of view, we give to you Love Unlimited, became a million-selling record in 1972. White wrote, arranged, and produced one of the singles off that album, the soul ballad "Walking in the Rain with the One I Love." It was based on conversations with one of the singers, Glutian James, and hit number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100 pop chart and number six on the Billboard R&B chart in late 1972. It was White's first platinum-selling single as a writer and producer. In addition, you can clearly hear his distinct voice as he played the role of the lover answering a call from the female lead vocalist.
2: Russ Reagan left uni for 20th Century Records soon after Love Unlimited's album was released. Without Reagan around, White's relationship with the label soured. Unable to continue working with Lummon... Unable to continue working with Love Unlimited because of their contract, White decided he needed to get with another act. He wanted to work with a male singer and made demos of three of the songs he was writing. Nunes heard the demos and insisted that White re-record and release the songs himself as a solo artist. He had flirted with being a recording artist back in his Delphi days, but he decided to focus on A&R and on production. His mind hadn't changed since then, and he and Nunes argued for days. Ultimately, Nunes won out, and White agreed to do it. He wrote a few more songs and recorded a few albums.
1: A full album.
2: uh, he 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 wrote a few more songs and recorded a full album. He planned to use the performing name White Heat, but ultimately decided to stick with his professional name, Barry White. His first solo album, I've Got So Much To Give, debuted in 1973. It included the title track as well as I'm Gonna Love You Just a Little More Baby, which hit number one on the R&B charts and number three on the pop charts and stayed in the top 40 for weeks. He planned to use the performing name of White Heat, but ultimately decided to stick with his real name. Barry White's first solo album, I've Got So Much To Give, debuted in 1973. It included the title track as well as I'm Gonna Love You a Little More Baby, which hit number one on the R&B charts and number three on the pop charts. And it stayed there
1: for and it stayed in the top 40 for weeks. White also managed to get Love Unlimited released from their contract at Uni and moved them over to 20th Century Records. They recorded several more hits in the 70s, including I Belong to You, which spent over 5 months on the Billboard R&B chart in 1974, including a week at number 1. Under the influence of Love Unlimited hit number 3 on the Billboard Pop Charts. White had reason to celebrate his relationship with that group for personal as well as professional reasons. On Independence Day, 1974, he married the lead singer Glodine, whose conversations had inspired the lyrics to that first hit
0: back in 1972. White didn't give up on being an A&R man, however. In 1973, he formed the Love Unlimited Orchestra, a 40-piece orchestra that was intended to back Love Unlimited on a future album. But then he came up with another idea an instrumental concept album. Russ Reagan thought he was nuts, but the label released the single Love's Theme in 1973, an instrumental track which White wrote, and it reached number one on the Billboard pop chart. It would go on to sell over a million copies, and in later years White would win a BMI award for over three million covers that were sold to the song. In 1974, they released their full album, Rhapsody in White, which included the Love's Theme. Rhapsody in White and Barry White himself
2: are sometimes credited with bringing the disco sound to popularity, combining R&B with classical music. In fact, some consider Love Scene, in fact, some consider Love's Theme the first hit of the disco era. He continued making albums with the orchestra and they had some further success including, and these are fantastic names by the way, Satin Soul, Forever in Love, Midnight Groove, and My Summer Sweet. The Love Unlimited Orchestra stopped making
1: their own albums in 1983, but they continued as White's backing band. White had many other chart-topping hits throughout the 1970s. Never, Never Gonna Give You Up hit number two on the R&B charts in 73. Can't Get Enough of Your Love Babe was number one on both the pop and R&B charts in 74. You're the First, The Last, My Everything was also number one in 1974. What Am I Going to Do With You hit number one in 1975, and It's Ecstasy When You Lay Down Next to Me made number one in 77. Let The Music Play hit number four in 76. Your Sweetness Is My Weakness hit number two in 1978. White also did well in the UK in the 70s with five top ten hits, and You're the First, The Last, My Everything hit number one there
0: as well. Okay, Russ Reagan left 20th Century Records, and Barry White found himself in a very familiar position at a label he didn't like working at, with no support from the top. So White himself left 20th Century in 1979 after fulfilling his contract for two more albums. He launched his own label with CBS Columbia Records, named Unlimited Gold, a deal touted as one of the biggest at the time. Unlimited Gold's roster included White, Love Unlimited, the Love Unlimited Orchestra, Jack Perry, and Danny Pearson. White's success on the chart began to wane as disco lost its shine, but he maintained a loyal following well into the 1980s. He would release several albums over the next three years, but only one single, 1982's Change, hit the Billboard R&B Top 20, and it uh, ended up topping out at number 12. His label was a financial failure, and White concentrated on touring before he closed the label down in 1983. In 1987, White signed with A&M Records and released The Right
2: Night and Barry White. Its single, Show Yo' Right, made it to number 17 on the Billboard Billboard R&B charts. In 1989, he released The Man Is Back. This album included three top 40 R&B singles. Super Lover hit 34, I
1: Want To Do It Good To You hit 26, and When Will I See You Again got to 32. White rode high on a wave of 70s nostalgia through the 1990s. He sang on Quincy Jones's 1989 album, Back on the Block, contributing to the song, The Secret Garden, Sweet Seduction Suite. A string of successful albums followed. 1991's Put Me In Your Mix, which included a duet with Isaac Hayes, hit number eight on the R&B charts, and the title song hit number two. In 1994, The Icon Is Love hit number one, The single Practice What You Preach from that album also hit number one as a single, which was his first number one song in almost 20 years. The production lineup of the album included industry notables, Gerald Levert, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis, in addition to White himself. It earned a Grammy nomination for Best R&B Album that year, but lost to TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool. In
0: 1996, White recorded duets with both Tina Turner and Chris Rock. The former was the title track to Turner's album, In Your Wildest Dreams, while the latter was Basketball Jones, a remake of a Cheech and Chong bit from 1973. It appeared in the movie Space Jam. Barry White's final album, Staying Power, came out in 1999. The title track made it to number 45 on the R&B track, and it won two Grammys for Best Male R&B Vocal Performance and Best Traditional R&B Vocal Performance. White's amazing musical career lasted 25 years and included 106 gold and 41 platinum albums, 20 gold and 10 platinum singles, and worldwide sales in excess of 100 million.
2: A voice like Barry White's wasn't limited to music, though. His first voice acting role was the character Brother Bear in the 1975 Ralph Bakshi film Coonskin. It was a hybrid animated and live action film about an African American rabbit, fox, and bear. Who rises to the top of the organized crime racket in Harlem? This was also White's first appearance in person on the big screen as he played the character Sampson
1: in the movie's live-action segments. White was a fan of The Simpsons and reportedly contacted the staff about making a guest appearance. He got his wish and appeared as himself in several different episodes, uh, including one where Bart and Lisa uses voice to attract snakes. <laughs> <laughs> White did a lot of commercial work over the years, most notably for the Prodigy online service, Mo- Oldsmobile, Jeep, and Arby's. He promoted their Market Fresh menu at one point. That's right. His distinctive bass tones also graced Apple's first iBook commercial. Barry White made three guest appearances on Ally McBeal, a show that had frequently featured his music. White also appeared as a guest on a wide variety of shows. He appeared on Soul Train, had a full band with them on the Today Show at one point, and at the height of his popularity in the 70s, had a
0: full hour on Dinah Shore's daily syndicated show. Barry White dealt with health problems and being overweight for the bulk of his adult life. In October of 1995, he was admitted to the hospital with high blood pressure. In August of 1999, he had to cancel a month's worth of tour dates because of high blood pressure and exhaustion caused by his hectic schedule. White was hospitalized in September of 2002 with kidney failure due to chronic diabetes, and he still had his high blood pressure. He was put on dialysis while waiting for a kidney transplant. The next year, in May 2003, his high blood pressure caused him to suffer a severe stroke and would force him to retire from public life. On the 4th of July 2003, he died at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles at the age of 58. Barry White's fame and awards outlived him,
2: and in 2004, he was posthumously inducted into the Dance Music Hall of Fame. In 2013, on what would have been his 69th birthday, he was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I mean, what else can you say about Barry White? No, and the fact I never knew that there was a duet with him and Isaac Hayes, but I have to go now find this as soon as we're done recording. (laughs) Um, Because those two voices together— I mean, the 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 the, uh, the level of, of coolness and and soul uh, going with those two voices together must just have almost caused the planet to stop rotating. Uh, I'm amazed we made it through 1991.
0: Well, well, here's a funny thing I just was realizing, just thinking about the dates, is Barry White falls into that interesting group of people who lived in Texas until they were like 10, 11, 12. And then they go off somewhere. And not that long ago, we did one on Steve Martin, who's Mm -hmm. almost Barry White's age. So like, well, yeah, Carol Burnett's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Like there's this whole generation of folks that headed to California in like the uh, mid 50s out of Texas and had their their roots and start here. It's good company. That's what I'm saying. Texas is a great place to be from folks. And to live too. But yeah. but um (laughs) (laughs) the other thing that strikes me is
2: you know we did the episode a few months ago on uh, peacock records and that the peacock records there was like what five or six different sub labels and uh for for that you know peacock and chess and and uh music box and many different sub labels and like you think you look at all the you know he worked for He worked for Bronco, for Delphi Records with the sub labels Bronco and Mustang. (laughs) It's like, you know, all of these record labels in the 1960s and 70s. um, And it just must have been a license to print money just to run, do a run of a couple of hundred singles, you know, uh, 45s that would sell. There must have been so much money in music. And the fact that you'd get a, you know, You'd get a twenty-two-year-old uh, uh, singer, part-time singer, you know, occasional singer, and and groom him to be an A&R guy, you know. <laughs> and just go find go find artists, you know. Come work for me for for, for uh, forty bucks a week. Go find artists and record, record music with them, you know. That's that's pretty amazing, you know. When you think about, you know, that that time and records must have been just truly remarkable in music in the music industry. It must have been just truly
1: remarkable. Yeah, I'm just really pleased that uh, Barry White was born in Galveston so that we can claim him as a Texan. Yeah, yeah, and that voice, you just, it, it instantly goes into your brain. Yeah, it's iconic. Um, a note, i would say a note on his first uh, voiceover role in Coonskin. Um, that is, I mean, first of all, it's a Ralph Bakshi movie. <laughs> yeah so um, it's going to be weird but um, I actually it's it's a poster that I had seen before that I had no idea of context for it's like what is that from
2: Oh yeah. but
1: um, it's got like the the Looney Tunes um, circles like that was always at the end of Looney Tunes and Porky Pig would stick his face through the middle of it and say that's all folks and there's a picture of a a black rabbit in a a white suit standing in front of that and then there's a tagline this is it folks
2: yeah, so it, he's it's a black rabbit in a suit that,
1: I mean, it's Superfly would have worn this. Yeah, it's the same yeah. suit as the is in the
2: movie Superfly. Yeah. So
1: so anyway, I'm looking at IMDb on um at some of the uh, the frame grabs from this movie, and yeah, I don't know how well it would play. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm I'm curious to see it, but.
2: Uh, it, it did have uh, it did have one of Philip Michael Thomas's early roles. So really, and, yeah, and Scatman Crothers was in it. So I, I've it's... never seen this movie either. So it's it was highly controversial when it came out. Uh, it is still considered controversial, uh, but she considers it his best film. So Mike, I can't remember the song Love's Theme. So, uh, but you know that song.
0: Yeah, it's like
2: yeah. It's, you would know it if you heard if you
0: it. hear it you'll know it it's the thing is it rides the line between between easy listening yacht rock and disco like it's it's complicated but it's yeah. it's got a simple theme it's heavily produced it's very elegant um but it just it puts you in a dentist chair like in 1977
2: you know yeah like yeah yeah and and I guess uh, Love Unlimited did a vocal version of it as well. Yeah,
0: it's a great song. It's it's iconic. Can't can't beat that. And that's the thing that like you you know Barry White do, do, to do, most do, people, do, yeah. do. Do, 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 do. Yeah, the, yeah. The thing yeah. about Barry White is that it's got
2: that click, tra- that that kick, that
0: that uh, <laughs> what is that kick? That ch- no, ch- no, it's called disc- wa- You stop, stop. You're hurting yourself. Here. <laughs> yeah, you're thinking of the. Wa- <laughs> I know
2: about the musics.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, a wah wah. Pe- There's a guitar with a wah wah pedal. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's playing. Okay. But here's the thing: is Barry White? I think most people, he's a he's a one note thought to most people of oh Barry White. He did. You know, romantic love songs. You know that are too saucy for the Quiet Storm. Um, But in reality, like the guy had a brilliant ear, and was a really masterful producer, and did so much behind the scenes that I just don't think he gets nearly enough credit for in his lifetime. He's a simp. They go, "Oh, is that yeah? He did that Simpsons, and he did that one song and that other song I heard and." And he's a giant man with this deep voice. And it's like, there's a lot more there going on. Mm-hmm. And a Texan oh, yeah.
2: to boot. You know What's amazing about that song, though, I mean, just to go back to that song, it it hit number one on the Billboard charts of the Hot 100. You know, it was an yeah, instrumental. Yeah, an
1: instrumental.
2: That, <laughs> <laughs> from a, that hit number one. So it's just amazing. I mean, and but then the fact that he had, you know, the fact that he had two back-to-back number one hits that were that were not just hits, like they were massive hits. I mean, can't get enough of your love, baby, and ne- never gonna give you up was number two, but can't get enough of your love, your love, babe, and you're the first, my last, my everything were were blowaway huge hits. You know, the next year after after the love song came out, so that's that's amazing. But you're right, he that that's just the, the tip of his you know, the most pub the most prominent feature of him is is those those huge hits, but the fact that he was behind so much great music as well, um, for so many
1: years is also often lost and forgotten about. I will always remember uh, Barry White and his music as the soundtrack for um The Biscuit on Ally McBeal. He uh <laughs> Definitely his music contributed greatly to that series, The
0: Biscuit. Yeah. No, it was a shame when we lost him, particularly had so many health problems for so many years. He was only
2: 58, you know, and that was the thing I think that I was remember when he died uh, in 2003 was that it was pretty shocking to me that he was only 58 years old. Um, he was not that old. Can, you know he'd been around, but you know the fact is is that he'd been around since he was a teenager as a as a musician. so uh, and and as you know his career had lasted so long, but it was, it was not that old. It's very sad. But now I'm gonna go find that Isaac Hayes song.
0: You do that, Sean. Oh yeah. that wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to BrainStable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at HistoryPodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Shawn with two N's, And I'm Scotticus. A special shout-out to our good friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. If you love this show, tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.